I want to tell you about someone that we have speaking with us this morning. His name is Steve Watson. He is the lead pastor of our sister church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Steve and his lovely family, aren't they cute, joined us in February on our yearly trip to New Delhi to go work with an organization called ASHA. We had a great time. His kids were great troopers. And uh, we really just enjoyed this chance to get to know him better. So I'm so excited to have him share with us this morning. Would you please welcome Steve Watson? Thanks, Sarah. It's great to see you all again. I drop in every year or so these days, and so I'm saying hi to some people who who remembered me from last summer, which is great. I think this is my fourth summer dropping in July to speak here. It's become kind of a tradition for me. Sometimes I come by myself, sometimes with different parts of my family. I'm here with my son, my preteen son, Zeke, in the back here today. Uh, and Zeke, of course, and I and the rest of our family were on that trip to Asha with Rhonda and, hey Rhonda, and uh, John and Sarah, some other folks from River and Reservoir. Um, hopefully you know this, but Reservoir and Reservoir are sister churches. Charles, and Charles uh, at least, was at, uh, on staff uh, at our church uh, before the river began, and uh, we've kept up close ties over the years, learned from one another, um, and, you know, at least at a leadership level, maintain a close relationship. It's really always a treat to be here and see how things are going and say hi to you and share something. So thanks for having us. Uh, my son Zeke and I in particular are at the tail end of a whirlwind uh, father-son, not quite cross-country, cross the eastern half of the country road trip. Uh, we hopped on a train uh, about a week ago and went to New Orleans, spent some time there, saw the fireworks barely over the Mississippi River, and uh, took a long, long, long train ride back from New Orleans to New York uh, yesterday and the day before, <laughs> and, uh, headed back to Boston tonight. But it's a pleasure to be with you and to make this stop on our train journey as well. Um, I want to talk about uh, kind of a heavy topic today that I want to drop us right into, but I think a really important topic that I think we need to have a lot more conversations about, and that topic is suicide. Uh, I'm sure many of you are living in a hopeful, zesty space. It's a beautiful summer day in New York, so even to hear that word at the beginning of a talk from a guest might feel jarring. Uh, but I think there are at least three circles in which some of us live, a uh, broader circle, I think we all live, in which this topic and some things related to us affect us quite a lot, but that we don't talk about very much. So the, uh, the first circle are those of us that are directly impacted by suicide. Those of us who have had suicidal thoughts or ideation, made suicidal attempts, or have had friends or family, that that's been the story, or who have died by suicide. So I'm living in that circle, and I'm sure some of you are as well. But admittedly, not all of us by any means. Um, there's a broader circle that largely includes that group, though, which is people that have been affected by major mental illness, by major depression. And so that's been part of your history or part of your current reality or the reality of friends or family or others you know. That's a much broader circle that includes many of us, maybe most of us in the room. I'm certainly in that circle as well. Uh, and then there's this yet even wider circle of people that have sometimes have hit crisis or have experienced hopelessness. And I think that circle includes all of us. That's like a human circle. Uh, and I think this talk has something to say, actually, to each of those circles. And then in the work of suicide prevention, uh, I think what God could say to us in this area is also an inroad to embracing an awful lot of good things, uh, like the good news that we live in a body, the good news that we live in a 
a universe and a spiritual reality of kind of endless, inexhaustible hope. And so I hope we can get to some of those good things today as well through this admittedly dark start. I'm going to pray, though, for us as we uh, start this conversation together. Uh, God, as we uh, spend time making space to learn and making space to see if you have encouragement for us today, uh, I feel like on the one hand, it's, it's not a big deal. Here we are, we're having a chat, listening to me talk for a little bit. On the other hand, it's kind of a sacred space. We're hoping that you'll encourage us in some way, that you'll have something to say to each of us that'll be good and personalized. We make space for that, ask you to do that. And certainly as we talk about a topic which is jarring for some of us, remote for others, uh, uh, quite personal and tender for yet others, we pray that you'd make space for whatever it is that we need from you in, these, in, in this space, in this topic. We welcome you, Jesus, we just sang. Amen. Uh, so for the past three years, other than being a pastor, I've gotten pretty involved in this work of suicide awareness and suicide prevention. Uh, the learning curve on this for me started when I was a high school headmaster, which I was doing for a few years before I was a pastor. And as a high school principal, we administered these youth risk behavior surveys on an annual basis. And where we live, this is common in, in public middle and high schools. And these were annual anonymous questionnaires to teens and preteens about their health and their uh, risk factors for various social uh, and emotional and health things they had going on. And uh, we looked at the rates that people reported having suicidal thoughts, and we were alarmed year after year after year. And then we looked at some broader statewide and national data and realized that we were right about in the middle of the average. There was nothing unique about our community. Um, Statewide, in my state, averages of uh, depression and suicidality. So over a quarter of high school kids uh, in Massachusetts, actually a little lower than the national average, uh, report uh, feeling regularly sad and hopeless, chronically so. Over a quarter, so more than one in four. Uh, Over a tenth report seriously considering suicide in the past year. A lot of kids. As I learned this stuff about youth, I started to think about the many people I'd known and, and kind of forgotten about that had died by suicide. Uh, there was a former student of mine that had killed himself, but his family experienced such shame over that that they hushed it over and refused to talk about it. The news went away rather quickly, and so the memory of this young man's life as well. Uh, two local college professors I'd known, uh, one who directed a choir I was in as a teenager and another who I taught across the hall from at a high school for several years. Uh, both died by suicide. They were both people of uh, pretty serious faith in Jesus. They were both employees of the same local Christian college at different times, and both of them in different ways experienced their academic careers stalling out or hitting profound roadblocks. And that was a kind of triggering event for a very long uh, mental health Uh, challenges that they had, and in both cases with that trigger, they then took their own lives. Uh, For those of us who have uh, watched someone go down this road, this is obviously a tremendously uh, sad, sad experience uh, for this to happen. Uh, For all this hopelessness and death, though, there's a pretty broad agreement that suicide is a preventable reality. It's a preventable disease that there's always better paths, different ways forward for people who are struggling with those thoughts. Uh, so three years ago, I joined the board of an organization called Samaritans. It's Boston's major uh, suicide awareness and suicide prevention and suicide uh, sort of post-care for uh, families who have experienced loss by suicide uh, in our region. And in that work, I've discovered that our country is facing a really a public health epidemic of suicide. Uh, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death 
Uh, when you look at causes of death in the mid-50s and below, everywhere it's in the top five. Uh, for youth, it tends to be in the top one or two causes of death. Uh, there are 40 to 50,000 deaths by suicide per year in this country, uh, twice as many suicides per year as homicides. Uh, there's over a million suicide attempts in this country over a year, hundreds of thousands of which result in hospitalizations, and many millions more of suicide attempts that people make every year in this country. Uh, this past spring, if we've been paying attention, there's been a lot of news and attention to suicide. Um, partly it's been driven by the Netflix show, 13 Reasons Why. It's this adaptation of a young adult novel. How many of you have seen that? Have seen any episodes of 13 Reasons Why? Uh, just a few. Most of you are not in the target demographic. Uh, <laughs> any of you have teenagers uh, that have seen 13 Reasons Why in your life? Um, most teenagers uh, have caught parts of the show. It's been super, super popular. And so at least where I live, like every high school and every middle school has sent uh, notices and letters home to their parents, like, talk to your kids about this show. It's kind of helpful, kind of not, but it's raising this uh, conversation about suicide uh, quite a bit, and we need to talk about it. So I'm inviting us to join this conversation today, a conversation that despite how uh, common suicide is and how many important issues it touches on for all of us that we don't talk about all that often in my experience. I want to share a little bit about what I've been learning, not just about suicide, um, but about its beautiful alternatives, about things like resiliency, about things like hope, like joyful living in these bodies we tend to neglect and hate so often, uh, about connection and about life for us and for the people we know and for the communities in which we live. I hope that sounds like a good way to spend a little time. Uh, surprisingly, this is not a new conversation. Uh, there are uh, stories about suicide and all kinds of ancient liter literature, including in the Bible. Uh, there are several more suicide attempts in the Bible. There are many people uh, who encounter God in the midst of quite profound struggles with hopelessness and despair. And I want to read one of those stories. It's from a period of Israeli monarchy some 27, 2800 years ago. So it's a super ancient story. It's no matter who you are and what culture you're coming from, it is, I promise, a profoundly cross-cultural story. But I want to drop us into it without any context, uh, whether it's familiar or unfamiliar. And then I'll have some things to say about it after I read it. Um, but I want to read it without context and just kind of like see... What impact this story has on you? Again, it's from this book called First Kings, longish story. It goes like this. Ahab, this king, told Jezebel, his wife, this queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked and... There at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they're seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. And also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Ebal-Meloah, for your prophet in, this, in your place, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I shall leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So they said this is like an utterly strange story. If you are a Bible reader, familiar with the Bible, you may recognize it and just feel at home in it. If you're not, it's likely bizarre, right? It's full of this kind of magical spirituality, like angels appear and talk, food pops out of nowhere. And that kind of magical spirituality may be part of your past spiritual experience, or uh, likely not, or maybe part of a spiritual experience you hope to have that you would never like to have. I'm largely not going to talk about that, but that's one kind of cross-cultural element to this story, for sure. Another element, which I'm not really going to talk about, is the violence in this story. All the major characters in the story, the king, the queen, Elijah, even God when he talks, kind of assume a connection between God and violence, and that out of how God works in the world and how God's enemies work is through violence. Uh, I'll just say that I think it's quite clear to me that Jesus uh, was really uh, clear on trying to sort of subvert that uh, tendency in these ancient stories, and to say that's actually not how God works in the world, but this story comes from a time and a culture when the majority of people of all cultures, really all religions, at least in this region, assume that that is how God worked in the world, through human violence. And so I think that's not the case. I think Jesus thinks that's not the case, but it's not really what I'm going to talk about either. But that's a kind of cross-cultural element of the story. Uh, What I do want to talk about, though, is kind of Elijah's story with profound hopelessness and depression and how he experiences God meeting him in that. We meet this guy again named Elijah, who's the hero of this uh, portion of this narrative of the book of Kings, which is interesting because it's a story about kings. It's named Kings. It's about the spiritual lives of Israel's ancient kings. Uh, And yet in this part of the narrative, the kings are called bums, and Elijah, this prophet, obscure prophet, is the hero of the story. So he's a spiritual advisor. He's one that is at odds with the reigning monarchy, which is an awkward place to be, right? To be a spiritual advisor to rulers that want you dead. But that's the situation he's in. Uh, Best as we could tell, Elijah's prone to anxiety and depression. People did not get diagnosed back then, so we don't have those labels. Um, But Elijah, in this scene and really throughout his narrative, is kind of chronically nervous about his fate and the fate of his country. And he's prone to shattering levels of despair. And Elijah is here hiding in the wilderness, and he has some serious suicidal ideation. It's enough, he says. I want to die. 
He doesn't have a plan or a means to kill himself at this point, but he sees no other way out of his situation uh, than to die. In the work of suicide prevention, we call these things that Elijah is experiencing uh, risk factors. A risk factor doesn't mean that you are going to kill yourself, but it does mean that other people experiencing that risk factor have been more likely to consider suicide or to die by suicide. And because people and life are complicated, we never know how many risk factors someone else might be experiencing for something like suicide. We don't know what combination of those factors might make someone feel that suicide is their only way forward. But we do know what these factors are for the most part. Uh, One of them is depression in particular, uh, as well as some other mental health struggles. Uh, Other risk factors are things like a previous history of suicide attempts, a social isolation, a gun ownership, interestingly enough, uh, things like identity crises of violence or conflict in your life or amongst your uh, closest relationships, and quite a few other things that are risk factors that increase people's odds for suicide attempts. Uh, My most recent brush with suicide was with my friend Esther, who killed herself about two and a half years ago. And the year before she died, Esther was increasingly getting involved at our church in Cambridge. Uh, She was a Korean-American woman who uh, loved sports and music. She loved kids in particular, but people generally. She was a profound extrovert with a particular passion for youth and serving youth. And in her late 20s, she was trying to figure out how she could uh, make a career out of doing that. A really delightful, wonderful person who also had quite a few risk factors for suicide in her life. Uh, Esther had long struggled since uh, at least her teen years with quite serious depression. Uh, When I met Esther, she had already been hospitalized once, and she was in a day treatment program for LGBT people who had uh, attempted suicide already. Uh, In fact, that program was the how Esther ended up at our church, because Esther had been church going somewhere else. She was told by our program, if you're going to keep going to church, you need to go to a church that is not like shaming or criticizing of your sexual identity, because that would be a big problem for you. Uh, and so she left a faith community and got involved in ours, because it felt like a kind of safer, more welcoming space for her to be. Uh, she was in a crisis, though, of a really kind of internal conflict and also uh, external with a lot of some family members and other people in her life conflict uh, over being Korean and Christian and gay. Uh, So I visited Esther in her second inpatient stint after we'd been getting to know each other more, and I'd become her pastor. And we had this really sad, but what felt like great conversation about her dilemma. She was really saying, like, I'm Korean, like, I'm the child of Korean immigrants, I can't change that, but my parents and their community are, like, utterly unaccepting of me. So I'm also Christian, I really love Jesus, and I don't see that ever changing, and I also really love women, and that's clearly not going to change either. She's like, but I'm don't feel like I can be these three things, which are all part of me. People in my life are telling me I can't be these three things. We talk about how other people embrace these three identities and other stories like those quite peacefully, quite fruitfully, and how that was totally possible for Esther. She seemed game. Um, But there are other people in her life telling her differently. It was clear that she couldn't see a way forward. And some like two or three weeks after that conversation, Esther killed herself. Um... I'm simplifying the story a little bit here because, you know, parts of Esther's business, I have freedom to talk about permission with her family, and, you know, parts are kind of her story to tell, which you can't tell anymore. Um, also, because it's really sad. Like, I've been talking about Esther for too long. Like, I just don't want to talk about it anymore because it's so sad to see someone go through this. Um, but I will say, like, the truth about something like suicide is it's never, like, one thing that kind of makes it happen. The story is always complicated, Uh, unlike what we hear in pop culture, things like 13 Reasons Why, it's almost never caused by a single factor, but kind of a confluence of factors, some of which people have been living 
for a, with for a long time, and some of which are shorter term, like triggering events. And so Esther had a long story of challenges that she was living with, and then she had these triggering events of a series of immediate, uh, sort of largely family-related conflicts over her uh, f- merging kind of her faith, ethnic, and sexual identities, and, and people's rejection of her around that. Uh, we see really the same struggles uh, I have one other thing to say, just to be like super explicit, actually, before I talk about Elijah again. Um, uh, most, like, so we, I, I lost Esther, right? Our Esther's community lost her. We don't, we don't have her to tell her story anymore. Um, most people in Esther's shoes or in, in other kind of profound struggles like her, we, we don't lose. And really the reason I try and start these conversations is, I'm like, I don't know any of your stories, but uh, we don't want to lose anyone in this room, obviously, and we also don't want to lose like, people in our circles whom we love, people in our cities. And so my hope in having this conversation is that we can continue to like, move forward from wherever we are today, like a few notches into sort of people that embrace life and joy and resilience and people that have the kind of tools, skills, and knowledge to be like life celebrators and resilience makers and joy makers, like certainly in our circles of friends and family and in broader ways in our city at large. So that's like really my hope in talking about this stuff. We see again, like in the story of Elijah, him experiencing some of these same things, a temperament prone to depression, prone to despair, a person prone to social isolation, uh, but then there's trigger of conflict, of stress, and of uh, economic vulnerability that comes in for him as well. And he says, it is enough, and doesn't see a way forward. I find it interesting, this, this line of his, like, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Uh, literally, it's for I am no better than my father's. Uh, because Elijah feels like his life is going down the tube, consistent with the men in his lineage. And in our time and culture, and maybe in Elijah's too, for all I know, it's middle-aged men who kill themselves the most frequency. Um, People in the demographic I'm starting to approach. Men who hit a point in their life uh, where they're coming to grips with their limits, coming to grips sometimes with a sense of loss and failure, and think like, this is it. It's not going to get any better for me. No better than my father's. So this is an old story about a person who I think's reality still speaks to us. It also becomes this story about encounter with a living God. And I know that in our blue ocean churches, our habit is not just to try and talk about God as a concept, as a spiritual thing, theory, but to try and facilitate interaction with God as we understand God, uh, encounters with God. And we see this happening for Elijah too. So I want to look at what God seems to give Elijah as Elijah experiences it in this space, asking how does God invite Elijah into what in the work of suicide prevention we call protective factors. How does God help build in Elijah this desire to live and a means to pursue more life and more joy and more hope? And what does this mean for us that are invited to listen in on this conversation? If suicide is kind of a big no, uh, no other way out of hopelessness, no way forward, no more life, then I think what we see in this encounter is actually what we always see from God as I understand with God, which is a bunch of important yeses that faith can bring. And so I want to share five of these yeses. The first yes is yes to your reality. Yes to your reality. Uh, Most of the people, but especially most of the heroes in the Bible, have really jacked up lives, uh, with Elijah being no exception. I think this normalizes, was meant to normalize our struggle. So in the case of Elijah and others, it can also normalize our mental health struggles as well. Again, like significant numbers of us uh, here in this room experience acute or chronic mental health challenges, sometimes for a phase, sometimes for our whole lives. 
Uh, And there's no stigma or shame in that, or at least there shouldn't be. Uh, The charter documents, the Bible, that tell us about Jesus and about people's experience with God and understanding with God over many, many centuries have this ancient version of us all over them. It's these limited people like Elijah. It's these broken people. It's these impulsive and stressed out people, uh, even these people that have had suicidal ideation who God speaks to and loves and advances his story through. I feel like whatever your story, obviously I largely do not know the folks in the room, but whatever your story is, you are the kind of person that God likes. You're the kind of person that God knows and likes to talk to. You're the kind of person for whom God's not waiting for your mood or circumstances to change because God always starts with a yes to our reality, exactly as it is today. God's ready for us in that space, no other. With Elijah, we also see this yes to our bodies. Elijah's like, it's enough, right? And God makes sure he gets a snack and a nice long nap. It's really interesting to me, the story like lingers over these physical details. There's quite a lot of texture around these things. Elijah needs food to eat. He needs some rest. He needs a big, tall glass of water. He needs a long walk to clear the mind. God has things to show Elijah, but none of that's going to happen until Elijah's body is well tended to. The whole Greek uh, like intellectual and spiritual world in which the news of Jesus first started to spread really de-emphasized the importance of the body. And so with this influence and trying to uh, you know, gain respect in that culture, the whole Christian spiritual story, Christian spiritual development, largely took on these same ideas, that the soul and the mind, wherever those are, are really important, but not our bodies. But our mind, and whatever it is we might call a soul and a spirit, are in our bodies. There's nowhere else they can be. And the whole Bible really could be read as this affirmation that bodies really matter. Elijah, again, needs this word from God, but he also needs exercise. He needs a good night's sleep. He needs hydration. He needs some healthy food. God says yes to our bodies and to their care. So when we're depressed, like we might spiritualize that, we might need prayer, we might need meditation. These things can actually be quite helpful. I'll talk about stuff like that. But we also might need really good medication to deal with our body, right? Nutrition and movement and sunlight and physical touch and exercise and health care, they're all like a really central part of the good, nourished, whole life that God understands and is invested and interested in. So again, even though I think our tendency might be to hate our bodies or to neglect our bodies, God loves our bodies too. And God says yes to what our bodies need. Thirdly, I think we see yes to purpose and yes to hope. Uh, We'll talk a little more about purpose and hope at the end. So just a quick quick word here that uh, after all of Elijah's body care that God helps him with, and at the end of his wilderness prayer time, he senses God speaking to him. And what God's giving to him after this kind of mystical experience of silence is God's giving him work to do, which is interesting, right? His king and his queen are after his life. So God's like, that's fine. They don't want you to go somewhere else. He sends Elijah to be a spiritual advisor to another country for a bit. It's really interesting to me that Elijah feels like his work is over. Like after this profound success he's had, he's living a profound failure and there's like nothing more to do. And I think, wow, a lot of us struggle with this as a profound vocational failure sometimes. It's been actually a huge uh, through line of my own life experience to deal with fears of failure, experience of failure, and fear of failure. That's like pretty core stuff to actually who I am. 
But I think God largely is like not so invested in our concepts of failure and success and like doesn't read our lives like, our, like we do. We certainly see that's the case for Elijah here. God's like, no sweat, like not working out in this place. Like there'll be other things to do somewhere else. That's okay. He reminds Elijah too that he's not alone. He can take hope that he has these 7,000 other people in his tiny country that are on mission with him that he's sort of not seen or doesn't know about. And he's got this successor to train to, to carry on his work after he's gone. There's lots of purpose, lots of work for Elijah to do, even when he feels like he's run out of purpose and work. And there's lots of hope ahead for him. Along with purpose and hope, I think we get for Elijah again amongst, amidst this relationality, a yes to belonging. Elijah needs to remember he is not alone. He's got all these potential partners in his faith, all these potential partners in his life mission. He's got the successor again to know and to train. His gut sense is there's no one. He is all alone. He doesn't belong. And his gut sense, as it is, I think, almost always for us, when we feel that way, when we feel isolated, alone, like no one really understands me, it's a lie. This is part of my friend Esther's journey again. It had gotten into her head, as I mentioned, that her dilemma she experienced was somehow quite unique and that no one could understand her. And I remember her telling me, like, I thought I could just shut parts of myself down, but I can't. I'm born Korean. I love Jesus. I love women. And people in her life that shamed her for this, saying that combination of things made her not belong, not welcome. But that was a lie, right? Uh, as sort of my effort as a pastor to like convince her of that lie. Uh, in the work we do at Samaritans, we always tell people, you are not alone. It sounds like a funny thing to tell a stranger that, but we just know that's true. We, uh, this is why uh, in our church reservoir, I'm sure here at the river, I think it's really the Blue Ocean Churchway, we're always saying that in our community. We're always saying that in God's family as well, everyone belongs, everyone without exception. There's like no distinguishing, no kind of uh, sort of, I don't know, better prepared or worse prepared people to belong to God and to belong amongst people who are looking for God together. That's why God speaks to Elijah in the desert when he's in despair, when he feels alone. God's saying, you are not true. There's people you haven't seen yet. You're not alone. So yes to your belonging. And finally, we hear this in our story. We hear this yes to God with us. Elijah has this spiritual experience out in nature, as many of us have. That's a rich place that many people experience God in. He has this tremendous mountain view. He sees this wind and fire and all the tumultuous power of nature that you can see. But then in this moment of sheer silence, he realizes that God is with him, and he then hears the voice of God as well. God with us, this phrase Emmanuel in Hebrew is actually a nickname for Jesus. Because for people who take an interest in trying to follow Jesus, this is part of the deal. It's like an increasing experience that God is in fact with us. That we can have a vibrant and living faith in a good and loving and present and communicative God. It still kind of stuns me, even though I've been on this journey for a while, how eager it is God is to be with me. I think, like, really, God, there are a lot of us. I'm not all that special. Like, why the attention on me? And then it is again. Uh, this just a recent memory. This past spring, I'm watching one of my sons, my other son, perform on stage. And uh, he had faced some challenges that year, and there's some worries that my wife and I had as parents. And there on stage, he, like, shines all of a sudden this whole new way. He has this sort of speaking moment, this singing moment. And we had heard him practice, but we were not prepared for, like, how confident, how large, and how awesome his voice was in that moment on stage. And as I watched that happen, I just thought, 
whoa, that was so amazing. I felt kind of, you know, teared up and emotional. And I had this sense, like, all of a sudden in that moment, I was like, I think God is here. And I, like, quietly sat there in my seat and was like, thank you, God, for this moment. And when I said, thank you, God, like, this just rush of sensation, intuition, I can't explain it any other way, it came to me. It was like, it was quite clear to me that God was with me in the seat. God was there on stage. God was like, I'm here, Steve. I'm here with your son. I'm here with, your, I'm here with you. Like, I made this moment happen. I'm having fun with it, too. Isn't this great? Like, let's watch your kid together. This, like, deep sense that God is with him, that God would be with him in all of his growing up that was never going to change, that God was with me in my parenting, however sort of great or horrible it had been. I thought, oh, <laughs> like crying, crying, crying. And for my son, this is like five seconds solo. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? <laughs> I'm having a spiritual experience. It's okay. <laughs> God's with me. Um, obviously, like all of our spiritual experiences, all of mine are not quite that emotional or profound. They're quite humble often. Just kind of a moment of silence to say, you know, God, I'd love to experience you as with me here. It's kind of a sense. Like I'm pretty sure God is, in fact, here. This God with us, I think it's among the greatest gifts God wants us to know that we're never alone, that God will never stop loving us, that God will never leave us. And I'm going to pray in just a minute as I wrap up. That'll be true for each of us today if that experience is less common or, or infrequent or unfamiliar to you. Um, but I want to offer like three sort of final closing thoughts, kind of little invitations. I like to give invitations when I speak, not because you have to do any of these things, but you can try any of them if you like. So uh, here's one of them. The first is to choose like really robust but not obsessive self-care. So I'm trying to like straddle a line because whenever you speak to a group, there's people in different places on this, right? But the thought is that you have a body again. <laughs> you have a body that like wants care. Uh, your mind, your health, your stress, your peace is actually like really important. And no other person is going to come along and care for your body for you. It's sort of like a responsibility you have. No one else can do it for you. But God wants you to be well. I say like not obsessive because it's sort of a line we straddle. Like in any room of people, there are people for whom someone's like care for your body. Like, oh yeah, like I'm going to exercise six more hours and like spend a lot more time like being kind of like frenetic about my diet and et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, and you know, so some of us, you know who you are, are like we care for our bodies like just fine. We put a little too much effort and attention to it. We need to relax a little bit. Um, But I think a lot of us, if you're like any room I've been in before, like feel like somehow it's not, I don't know, it's like selfish or not spiritual or something. Just like care for our body. I think, no, this is actually this is really important. You might need more movement or more sleep in your life. Uh, there's like not, no better gift that you could give the world than to sleep enough. Uh, forget, give yourself. I mean, that's a good gift to yourself, but there's no other gift, good gift you could give to your work, to your friends, to your family, to people who care about than to sleep enough, right? Because you will thrive when you sleep more, right? So care for your body. You might need a great therapist or some medication or new medication. Like, go for it if that's what you need, right? Or if any of that or anything else is true, like, make it a priority. Because these are some of the means through which God loves us and cares for us by caring for our bodies. And then real specifically, I always like to advocate for the organization, the resources that are out there. If you are ever in despair of any kind, and you're just feeling alone, you're not sure who to talk to, or you feel like it'd be awkward to start the conversation, or if, God forbid, like you're experiencing suicidal ideation, uh, there are like people out there for this waiting 24 hours a day. There's a organization, we have a local thing I work for, um, but there's a national thing, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Like, humor me for a minute and jot this number down, or like fake it if you don't want to, because it'll I'll feel good if you write it down. Uh, it's one eight seven seven one eight seven seven two seven three eight two five five. It's one eight seven seven 
273-8255. This is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, I keep my organizations, like Boston version of that number, um, in my phone, even though I do not experience suicide ideation. But I'm like, if I ever give that number to someone, I want to show them. Like, it's in my phone if I ever need it. Like, put it in yours. It's a super great tool. Staff and volunteers that pick up these uh, lines, uh, what they are trained to do is to offer confidential, empathetic, non-judgmental listening. And that's it. Confidential, empathetic, non-judgmental living. They've saved lots of people's lives. They've made other people, lots of more people, just feel a little more sane and not alone for a minute. And like, there's no like qualification to call, and it's anonymous, right? You can call them like, even if you're just like a little blue, whatever. Anyway, the number one more time: one eight seven seven two seven three eight two five five. Super great resource. Uh, secondly, just two more things: choose community and bring your real self to the table. Again, some of us don't struggle with this so much, but some of us really, uh, sorry to stereotype, I'm not big into gender stereotypes, but a little more men than women on average, my experience, like struggle with a sense of social isolation. And, uh, and that can be quite like a profoundly hard thing at some point uh, for us. There are lots of ways to do this, obviously. You can like call your family and friends that don't live near you more often. You can say yes to invitations to go do things and to go places like Sarah's lovely invitation today. I just say yes to invitations. They're great, right? You can get to know the names of your neighbors who you've never met. I'm sure the river, uh, like all churches, like Reservoir, has lots of ways to facilitate community. Good churches are actually really good at facilitating community. It's one of our gifts, right? Um, but whatever, whatever it is that you choose, what you opt into to, as far as community, like bring your real self to the table. When the time seems right, when people seem curious, like let people know what your story is, how you're really doing. Like don't hide the parts that seem like, oh, actually I would kind of like to share this. And when you're on the other end of that exchange, when someone else brings their real self, simply just like offer compassion, offer prayer if you're comfortable doing that, but not solutions, right? Because people generally aren't looking at that from people. They want to feel validated. They want to feel listened to. Uh, Finally, something really specific here. I'm going to pitch a little practice you could try yourself or with friends this week. Uh, It's called building a personal hope kit. I'm going to invite you to do this, to build and like look at a personal hope kit. Now, admittedly, this is kind of a cheesy Pinterest-inspired thing to do. And you can trust me, as someone that grew up on WrestleMania and backyard football games, it's a little awkward for me to go around like pitching this kind of crafty thing you can do. But I do it because it really works, because I've done it and like it, um, and because it's worth doing. So uh, this idea of a personal hope kit was inspired by suicide prevention research that comes out of that particular field. But it's really a great way for all of us, whatever our story is, to increase the amount of hope we have whenever we could use that. The idea behind a personal hope kit is you have a physical thing. Um, and obviously you could, you know, have an app on your phone or like have a virtual, but uh, the research says like having a physical thing you can like touch and hold is actually much more effective. So you have a physical thing like a cardboard box. Uh, I have a glass mason jar. We did this activity at a community group that uh, we host in our home and we, we bought like 10 of these glass mason jars and had everyone have one. And so I have this little mason jar by my bedside, right? And the idea is that you, you jot down on little strips of paper uh, various uh, things that cheer you up, ways you're not alone, uh, good work that you have to do in the world, things that bring you joy. And the idea is like not just to go super heavy, but to go like modest, right? Because, I don't know, we tend to have these elevated sense of what's important or worth writing down, but it's like if you have a pet that needs you, like that qualifies. You're like, you know, my dog or cat so-and-so, my fish, whatever, right? Like it, would, it needs me to live. Like that's good work I have to do to care for that living thing, Right? If you like tacos, you're like, you know, you write down tacos, right? Stuff that just cheer, brings you any level of cheer, right? Or what kind of work that, or ways you're needed in the world, or work that you have to do. Of anything qualifies, right? Big and small. 
And you can trade out some of those pieces of paper for like mementos. So like if you have a kid and you write your kid's name down, you can swap out the strip of the name for like a picture of your kid, right? And, you know, make this thing more interesting over time. And the idea is like, I don't know, when you're kind of blue, when you've had a bad day, uh, you just pull the thing out and you kind of, you know, touch the things and think about them. And let that do whatever it does for you. You can say, thank you, God, for these things. You don't have to be spiritual. You just be like, I mean, this is spiritual, right? Just look at it and feel a little sense of hope and joy. It's like super effective. I don't know. I really pitch for people to do this now. So build a hope kit. Uh, if that feels like weird or crafty to you, just do it. Like, you'll be glad you did it. Trust me. So try this out. Okay. So sadly, I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, the crises, pain, um, for some of us, even crushing, crushing depression are simply a part of life. Like, it's in our genetic heritage. It's in our personal circumstances. There's nothing we can do to avoid it. Um, but despair and hopelessness and suicide are, like, eminently avoidable, very much so. You are not alone. You have people who love you. You have people and things that rely on you, likely more than you think. Uh, there's a good God, too, who loves you, who gave you your body and understands your body, loves your body, loves your needs, who is with you in your reality, whatever that is, and who always in this life till the end of the age has more purpose and inexhaustible stores of hope for you as well. So let me pray that we could kind of feel and experience that to some degree. Could you join me for a second? As I pray, just be aware of your body for a second. Feel yourself sitting in that chair. Feel the, your back as it leans against the chair. Your feet as they touch the floor. Just be aware of your body for a second. Here I am. God, thank you that you love us, these people in the room. God, thank you through such clever and interesting means that you made these bodies of ours. Thank you that you enjoy watching us walk around the streets of this city and sit here in this room. Thank you that you are the source of our breath and that you hear and feel the breath that courses in and out of our mouths and throats and lungs. Thank you. This is huge pleasure for you to look at your people, smile. Oh, I love them so much. God, in the various ways and kind of filters we have and baggage we carry and challenges we bring to the table that make it a little hard to experience a God, invisible God of the universe, loving us, having hope for us, smiling at us. There's a zillion ways that it's hard for us to experience that, to believe that that's true, or to sort of live in that experience. So, God, could you, um, could you gift us with that experience today? Could you just gift us with a profound intuition, with a felt experience that you treasure our lives? You have inexhaustible stores of hope for us in this life and for all ages to come. Come, Jesus, we pray by your Spirit. We welcome you. We pray that all the things that will happen before we leave this room would increase our sense that you're here with us, that you love us, that you have great hope for us.